Good morning. I'll try not to spit on you. Danny said to aim for him. All right, we are continuing our lesson from a few weeks ago that I ran out of time for and then get into something new here. So let me find where we were and we will continue. All right, uh, we've been talking about um, some small reformation happening in the Western Catholic Church. Uh, it was called the Hildebrand or Hildebranding Reformation, um, and it had three goals. Um, they were to uh, reform the papacy from being uh, a corrupt puppet of the aristocracy uh, and turn it into what it should be as the head of the church as they saw it that you know the moral and the um, spiritual leader and standard for the rest of the church uh, second to eliminate the practice of simony which was selling clerical positions we saw examples of that uh, and third to deal with sexual immorality among the clergy and we talked about how they were doing that by uh, trying to make all of the clergy be celibate so they they didn't marry, just like the monks were doing. Um, I believe I ended with uh, a quick note here that I think is worth repeating, which was it was in this time period that the church began to see itself as uh, the church militant instead of, um, you know, the, the pilgrim church. And, and those who had gone to heaven already were the church triumphant rather than being the church at rest. So there's a, a military shift, if you will, or a, a conquest mindset that's starting to come about the church. Um, and we know where this is going to go uh, towards the Crusades, which I, I think we will get to the start of those today. What, what years we're, we've been around the year 1000. We've been in the late 900s, early 1000s. I think some things we talked about even up into the 1100s. Um, so this the story and what's going on with Hildebrand is taking place in, in the late thousands. Um, so I actually got some dates coming up here. Uh, so get, getting back to that story uh, and the reformation that was going on, uh, Hildebrand would eventually become the Pope through all of this. Uh, if you remember, he was just, a, I believe, a German bishop um, and who was brought up in authority because the uh, Holy Roman Emperor, a, a German um, emperor or king had deposed the previous three popes if you remember that controversy and, and set up his own people and that included raising up this Hildebrand uh, and so in AD 1073 Hildebrand became the pope uh, and as you probably know popes don't keep their name they take a new name when they become pope so he became Pope Gregory Seventh. Um, and then he started to really make some changes as the Pope, um, things that I think will really rub us the wrong way as Protestants. Uh, in 1075, he published a papal decree uh, with a lot of interesting claims in it. I think there were 37 different claims in that decree, and I'm not going to read all of them, but I picked some of the more interesting ones for us. Uh, so he said, for example, the Pope alone can depose and reinstate bishops. Bishops under the Pope. It, it um, previously tended to be the practice of 
local lords and things. We talked about that, how, you know, if you owned the land that the church was on, you sort of thought you had the right to decide who the pastor was or the bishop. Well, now it's the Pope's responsibility, according to Gregory VII. Uh, the Pope is the only one whose feet all princes must kiss. So he's setting himself above secular government, uh, saying that they need to n- not worship, but bow to in a, in a subordinate type of way to him, is what that's looking at. Uh, third, the Pope may depose emperors. Um, he was the one who decided who the Holy Roman Emperor was, and he has the right to decide when, when that's going to change. Uh, number four, the Pope may be judged by no one. He shouldn't need to be judged. I think he's infallible, is what they teach. But, yeah, nobody has the authority to judge the Pope. It's a good thing to decree. We might try that ourselves. Oh. <laughs> um, the Roman Church has never erred, and it never will err, to all eternity. Isn't that right, Bob? They obviously didn't study history. Uh, And the last one I want to mention, he said that whoever is not in conformity with the Roman church should not be considered a Catholic, meaning part of the universal church. So he was saying the Eastern Orthodox people weren't really part of the true church. Uh, In order to complete the the separation that they were trying to accomplish of the church from the state and putting really the church above the state, uh, Hildebrand attacked the previously mentioned practice of investiture, which was, you know, where the landowner gets to decide who it is. Um, He did this by decreeing that the Holy Roman Emperor must cease from that practice. He made that another, not part of his 37, but a separate decree that he made. Uh, His opponent at the time no longer... Um, the individual who had put him in place, but now uh, Henry IV, um, who was a very gifted ruler, had strong support from the German churches, and so this didn't actually go over well, that the Pope was saying that um, the emperor doesn't get to decide who, who these people are in his, uh, in his realm. Um, and so Henry ignored the decree, Uh, And soon afterwards, in ignoring the decree, he appointed a new archbishop over the church in Milan, which is one of the major churches in the Western Church. Uh, Hildebrand, of course, protested this because it went against the decree that he had just made. Uh, And so Henry responded by calling for a council. Henry the Emperor calls for a church council to meet at Worms in Germany, uh, the same Worms that later Luther would be on trial in. Um, the diet of worms. We'll talk about that. It doesn't mean you eat worms. We're not going to talk about that today. But um, So uh, Henry calls for this church council to meet in Germany. It's not an ecumenical council. It's just a, a Western church council. Um, except it was mostly just German bishops who showed up to it. Um, and so those who were present at the council, of course, supported Henry. He was a good ruler in their region. They liked him. Most of them had been appointed by him previously or by his predecessors, and so they they gave their support to Henry, not to the Pope. Uh, And so following the decision of the council then to support the emperor, 
uh, Emperor Henry IV sent a letter to uh, Pope Gregory or Hildebrand, and I want to read you the letter that he sent. He said, to Hildebrand, not Pope, but a false monk, how dare you, who have won your power by deceit, flattery, bribery, and force, stretch forth your hand against the Lord's anointed, despising the command of the true Pope, St. Peter, who said, fear God and honor the king. That's in 1 Peter 2.17. You do not fear God, and you dishonor me, whom he has appointed. Condemned by the voice of all our bishops, leave the apostolic throne and let someone else sit there, someone who will preach the healthy doctrine of St. Peter and not exploit religion as a cloak for violence. I, Henry, king by the grace of God, with all my bishops, say to you, come down, come down from the papal throne and be damned through all the ages. That went over well with the Pope. He responded, of course, by doing what all popes do when they're not happy with someone. He excommunicated Henry. <laughs> uh, not only did he do that, he also declared that all the citizens of the Holy Roman Empire uh, were released from any obedience to Henry. He liked making decrees. He said, Henry's been excommunicated, and you guys don't even have to obey him as emperor. Uh, he was deposing him as the emperor, effectively. Uh, such a bold response from Hildebrand frightened the German bishops who had supported Henry, and they withdrew their support. It proved to be effective for Hildebrand to respond in this way. Uh, in fact, many of the lesser rulers in the empire also stopped supporting the emperor. Uh, and so Henry was left powerless. Uh, his nobles rebelled against him, and they removed him from his position as emperor in A.D. 1076. Uh, he was a desperate man, and so he wasn't ready to give up even without all this support. So he took his wife and his kids, and they went to Italy uh, to beg for forgiveness from the Pope. Uh, he waited outside of the... Um, the palace, the castle, wherever Hildebrand was living. Uh, apparently it was winter, so it was cold. Um, I don't know if it was snowing in this part of Italy, but uh, three days they waited outside the gates of this place, knocking and asking for an audience with Hildebrand. Uh, and he ignored them for three days until um, an abbot, uh, a man named Hugh, who was the abbot of Cluny and, and happened to be there, um, felt so bad for him that he insisted that the Pope uh, acknowledge Henry's repentance because he was there to repent, and as Pope, he was obligated to acknowledge that repentance. Uh, and so he did so. He acknowledged Henry's repentance, and he restored him to fellowship with the church. You know, he rescinded his excommunication, uh, although he suspected Henry's repentance was false. Just a power play. Um... It probably was. Henry now returned to Germany with, you know, papal support again, and of course that gave him back his support from all the local German rulers and bishops, uh, at least many of them. Uh, civil war quickly broke out, however, because while he was gone, they had selected a new emperor. They weren't just going to leave the position vacant. Uh, and so a man named Rudolf of Swabia had become uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the German nobles supported Rudolf, while the German bishops supported Henry. 
Um, both of them looked to Hildebrand, the Pope, for uh, support and uh, legitimacy to their claim to the throne. Uh, Henry ended up pushing Hildebrand a little too hard, uh, which angered him. I mean, he was already not on his good side. Uh, and so Hildebrand, the Pope, gave his support to Rudolf and excommunicated Henry again. <laughs> Talk about no assurance of salvation. So this time, however, the German bishops stayed loyal to Henry. I think they were over this back-and-forth bouncing that was happening. So again, Henry called a church council. This time they met at Brixton in northern Italy, uh, and they deposed Hildebrand from the papacy. So you know, previously they had called for him to step down with that letter I read you. Now this time they just said, you're done. We support the emperor, the true emperor, and we are deposing the pope. Uh, Henry went on to win the war against Rudolf uh, with the support that he had. He won the war in October of AD 1081, uh, and then he took his army and headed for Italy um, and, and was successful. He captured Rome, uh, but he wasn't able to catch Hildebrand. Hildebrand locked himself in the castle in Sant'Angelo. Uh, Henry, meanwhile, like, well, he's locked away. That's good enough. His own dungeon. So Henry appointed a new pope, uh, whom the council also agreed with. This was Pope Clement III. As pope, uh, Clement then crowned Henry as Holy Roman Emperor again, because that was to be Holy Roman Emperor and not just king of the, the Germanic nation or empire. You had to have the support of the pope, and that had to be an official thing. So now Clement has crowned Henry as Holy Roman Emperor. And you'd think it's done, but it's not. Because <laughs> if you remember, uh, last time we talked about the Vikings and how the Vikings did their thing, raided up and down, settled in different places. And ultimately, you'll remember, I mentioned a group of Vikings had settled in southern Italy and made a promise to protect the Pope. Uh, it was sort of this treaty they had signed. Well, Hildebrand appealed to that treaty, and so this group of former Vikings, we call them Normans, uh, came up from southern Italy to Rome to rescue the Pope. Um, they were successful, uh, not that they completely defeated um, the emperor's army, but they got in, they ransacked Rome, just trashed it like Vikings tended to do in that time, and they got Hildebrand out of his castle and took him south with them to Italy, where he was you know, free from his self-imprisonment. Um, he, Hildebrand, the, the previous pope, uh, spent the remainder of his life in exile there in southern Italy. Um, but he had been rescued by Vikings. Um, it may seem from all this story that, you know, the battle between the church, the emperor, who won? Well, it sounds like the emperor won, um, but it was actually a very short victory. Ultimately, in history, the, the balance would shift to um, the pope having the final authority. Um, and that took some time. There were actually going to be a while where we would have two men claiming to be pope. There would be a man that the emperor had selected, and there would be one that... The, the reformer group that Hildebrand was part of had selected. Uh, in AD 1096, the, the reformer's pope, who was named Urban II, uh, would go on to gain total control of Rome, both over the, the 
the church side, but also the political side, uh, simply by being a very popular guy. He was, everybody loved him. It didn't matter that there was an opposing person. He was such an outgoing and lovable guy that he gained the support of the state as well. Um, the controversy was finally settled in A.D. 1122, so we're some 26 years later, uh, when Emperor Henry V, this is a new guy, I wish they would pick different names, but they don't, so new Henry, um, made an agreement with this pope, Calixt, uh, sorry, not this pope, new pope, Calixtus II, they changed frequently, uh, and they agreed to share the right of investiture, of deciding who would get to be uh, bishops and abbeys and things like that. Abbots, not abbeys. Uh, it would be a joint appointment of a local ruler and the local archbishop. Uh, and so this forever changed the view that kings were sacred rulers. Now the, the papacy had a a say in who got to be the secular ruler of the land. Before we shift gears, I wanted to read a little bit of some poetry from this time period. Um, we had talked about a couple weeks ago a man named Bernard of Cluny. He was um, very influential guy in the, church, or the the monastery at Cluny, which we talked about the Cluniac revival that came out of there and spread and is what led to this Reformation. Um, and he, he was a writer, and I've got a bit of poetry in here, so I won't read too much of it, but I thought it's kind of fun to, to see what, you know, people over a thousand years ago in the church were writing. <coughs> Um, so this is uh, some excerpts from his poem titled The Glory of Heaven. The world is very evil. The times are waxing late. Be sober and keep vigil. The judge is at the gate. The judge who comes in mercy. The judge who comes in might. To bring an end to evil. To vindicate the right. And now we fight the battle. But then shall wear the crown. A full and everlasting and passionless renown. And now we watch and struggle, and now we live in hope. And Zion, in her anguish, with Babylon must cope. But he, he whom now we trust in shall then be seen and known, and they that know and see him shall have him for their own. For you, O oh dear sweet country, my eyes their vigil keep. For love's own sake beholding your blessed name they weep. The story of your glory is unction to the breast, and medicine pure in sickness, and love, and life, and rest. So, yeah. But one of the reasons I wanted to read it is uh, I think you caught the language in there about fighting a battle and gaining renown, because uh, we're going to talk about the Crusades now. <laughs> so, uh, there were, what's that? Robin Hood, yes, the uh, accurate historical figure as portrayed by Disney. <laughs> Part fox or something? Yes, Gary. I wonder the same thing. I doubt it. Uh, somebody got creative, I think, in translating that one. For starters, Clooney is in France, and that didn't sound like French to me. <laughs> 
So yeah, I, I don't know who gets the credit for that translation and making sure everything still rhymed. Probably AI. AI, yes. <laughs> so, all right, well, the Crusades. Uh, don't know how much you know or don't know or what, but uh, there were four main Crusades, um, and a Crusade is a, a military expedition by the empires of the Western Church, sanctioned by the Church, with the purpose of reclaiming the Holy Land from the Muslims. We're going to give that as our broad definition of what the Crusades were. Uh, the Eastern Church had been battling the Muslims uh, pretty much since the day that Islam was founded, because that's how Islam spread its religion, was through military conquest. And they were or quickly became neighbors of the Byzantine Empire and thus the Eastern Church. Um, but those were more of a territorial war, just what was happening. They're not something that we would call a holy war, you know, to reclaim Jerusalem. They weren't crusades that were happening over there with the Eastern Church against the Muslims. Uh, in fact, they were mostly, they weren't the church wars. They were the empire against the Muslim empire. I think Muhammad was in the early 700s, if I remember right. Um, and so by this time, they've spread throughout you know, most of the Middle East and North Africa and uh, up into Spain even. They crossed over there. Um, so, well, fighting against the Muslims was, you know, just something the Eastern Empire soldiers did frequently. Uh, no special rewards there. To the Western Church, the, they promoted this idea that if you participated in a soldier, as a soldier, in a crusade, um, and particularly if you got killed in fighting in a crusade, you were guaranteed the title of martyr and uh, the total forgiveness of your sins. Nothing to do with a cross, apparently. <laughs> Alternate method here, or, or this was their assurance of it. Um, it. Interestingly enough, sounds an awful lot like exactly what the Muslims were doing. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, this idea that you could have total guaranteed assurance of your forgiveness of sins made the Crusades very popular in the Western Church. Because as we've seen, I mean, not only do they not have assurance of salvation, they get excommunicated and brought back in all the time. It seems to be at a whim. So a little assurance uh, was quite a beacon of hope for the, the lay person. But that was only if they died? Yeah. Especially if they died. <laughs> Just fighting, of course, had some guarantees, too. Um, we've talked previously about relics, mostly in relation to the Eastern church because they were more and still are big into relics or uh, sorry what do we call them icons relics were more of a 3d thing particularly something that could be linked to a historically spiritually significant figure like a, a saint or jesus or an apostle uh, and those were very popular in the western church uh, if you'll remember because of their their understanding of hierarchy and being able to talk to god you know, they thought they had to pray to saints or to Mary or someone in order for that person to get the ear of God. And if you had a relic that belonged to the person you were praying to, they were more likely to listen to you. So, relics uh, were very popular. Um, many Western Christians went on pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Um, 
for much the same reason we do, to go see the place where Jesus walked. They'd go to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Jerusalem and these places. Um, but also they were going to search for relics to help them have a closer connection to God. Um, even though the Holy Land was Muslim territory and had been for quite a long time, uh, the Muslims treated the Christian pilgrims very well. Uh, it was it was part of their tourism economy, you might call it. Uh, bringing in the Western people and, and some of the Eastern as well and getting money out of them. Uh, all that changed in AD 1055. So we're still in these, you know, we're actually jumping back a little bit to look at some changes happening over there. Uh, when the balance of power within the Muslim empire shifted uh, and a group of Muslims out of Asia Minor called the Seljuk Turks became the dominant empire in that part of the world, including over the Holy Land. Uh, unlike the Muslims before them, the Seljuk Turks uh, started to be just brutally mistreat the Christians that came to the Holy Land. It was no longer a come on in, you know, thanks for your money, see you next year. Um, but they started to persecute them and kill them. Um, whether they were Eastern Empire Christians who, you know, the Turks had often battled with the Byzantines or even those from the West. They made no distinction. Um, of course, because they were at war with the Byzantines, and that's uh, what we think is why they considered all Christians to be the enemy. Uh, Western nations started to also have some success against Muslims at this time. I mentioned that the Muslims had pushed up into Spain. And it was around this time that the, the Spanish empires started to fight back and actually pushed the Muslims back out of Spain. Um, in AD, uh, I don't know the exact year, so AD 1035 to 1065, a 30-year period, uh, under the rule of King Ferdinand I of Castile, that's when Spain uh, won a bunch of victories over the Muslims uh, who had invaded from North Africa. And then from 1060 to 1090, we saw the Catholic Normans, the same guys who would rescue Hildebrand, um, have success against Muslims who had pushed up into the island of Sicily. They were able to battle and push Muslims out of Sicily. Um, and so as I've already mentioned, the church has seen itself as militant, and we're seeing Western empires fighting against a, a religiously identified group and having success. And so they're starting to think that this is the way forward, that God wants us to battle the Muslims and take back his land, his kingdom. Um, all of this would kind of come together in AD 1095, which is when the First Crusade um, got kicked off. And there were a number of factors that led to this. The Byzantine Empire was losing the war against the Seljuk Turks. Uh, and so the emperor appealed to uh, the pope at the time. We talked about him. He was Pope Urban II. We don't have much to say about him, but they appealed to him to, uh, to send support, to rally the Western nations and come help, not for a spiritual reason necessarily, but just come help with the war over there. Uh, at the time, Pope Urban um, happened to be in exile while Pope Clement III was ruling. I told you, there were usually two at this time period. Um, but for some reason, the Byzantines reached out to Urban. Uh, and so Urban saw this as an opportunity to uh, 
to rally people around him to have the support of the Eastern Empire and to maybe you know establish himself over Clement III. Uh, and so in November of AD 1095, he called, called for a church council um, that met in Clermont, France. And at this council, he gave a very fiery uh, and inspirational sermon calling on the Western nations to cease from their disputes, their internal fighting that they were doing, to unite together under Christ's banner, and to go and rescue the Holy Land from the Muslim Turks. Uh, the assembled church responded enthusiastically, chanting, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. Again, sounds like the Muslims, right? Isn't that what they say? Allah Akbar, it's the will of God? Yeah. Probably where they learned it. Maybe. Yeah. Or they had it first, and that's where, yeah, I don't know. Um, and so that, that chant, God wills it, would become the motto for the First Crusade. Um, it's been pretty easy to compare the crusades of the Western Church to the this jihadist mindset of the Muslims. Um, we've seen multiple examples of the similarities there. Uh, in both cases, we have religious devotees who are seeking to honor their God by conquering enemies in his name. Um, and for the church, I think this also mirrored the conquest of the Holy Land by Israel. They were thinking, well, God used Israel in a military capacity to conquer this land. He's done it before. He must want to do it again. Um, and so I want to quickly look at the more of the motivation for those, not the leaders, but the people like you and I who are just laypersons in the church. Why, why would we have responded uh, to this, or in what way would we have responded? Um, and so while Urban, uh, as I mentioned, his motives were for power. He was looking for that support. Um, for most participants, they were just devout Christians uh, who wanted to honor the land of God's people uh, and rescue it from the Muslims. Um, the doctrine of salvation had become so watered down in the church, uh, and I already said this, that really people didn't understand that Christ was the source of salvation, that he was uh, the hope of it, and there was assurance in that. Uh, and so they lacked certainty of their assurance. And so participation in a crusade was a great way to get the assurance that you are, in fact, saved. That, that it's not about, you know, if it's a tipping the scales one way or another, by the time you get to heaven, a crusade was, you know, a big gold bar on the good side. It was going to help you a lot. Um, the second, uh, many people began to promote the crusade uh, as a way to answer the call of Christ. Mark 8.34, Christ says, you know, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, the word crusade is the Latin word, uh, or comes from the Latin word crux, which means cross. So literally, the crusade was uh, a cross-bearing campaign. It was, it was how we responded, or how they thought we would respond to Christ saying, take up your cross. Uh, Crusader knights generally reflected this by painting the symbol of the cross on their shields. Um, so they, they did different colors for different nations. Um, France was usually red. England was white. Um, Flemish was green. That's northern Italy-ish region, I believe. Um, and so some knights even went so far as instead of painting their shield, they branded their body with a cross. Um, I don't think most of us would have gone that far with it. 
Yes. Uh, and so for, for the common people like you and I, many of whom, you know, we couldn't read. The Bible wasn't in a language that we could read. We only had what the leaders of the church were telling us. And they they're basically said, hey, this is how you can be certain of your salvation. And this is the will of God. This is how you take up your cross. Yep. And just to appeal to maybe your uh, less spiritual and more violent side, you can gain glory on the battlefield. And it's a state-sponsored pilgrimage. Want to go see the Holy Land for free? Your, your king is willing to ship you there as long as you will wield a sword when you get there. And you can find a relic while you're there, probably. In fact, a whole lot of new relics showed up, I think, when they got there. <laughs> uh, so why wouldn't you jump at this opportunity? <laughs> so um, well, it kind of wraps up the motivation, but... Uh, want to talk about the the people that participated in it. Uh, the most famous type of soldier, you know, we think of the medieval soldier, the crusader, is a knight, right? It's an armored person, and usually not just the common person like us, but this is a professional man of battle, uh, typically a, a wealthy man, and uh, often working as a mercenary or that type of thing, or, or under the employment of the specific king or lord. Knights were like the tanks of uh, a medieval army. They were mobile, they were armored, and they hit hard. Um, because they tended to be warriors as a lifestyle, they are also usually very violent men. This wasn't somebody you wanted to upset in a bar fight. Um, because they were violent wherever they went, in and out of battle. And so it was proving to be a problem in their society to have these professional violent men who didn't really have anything to do but hop from bar fight to bar fight or support local fights uh, in the kingdoms. Uh, and so the crusades were seen as a way to deal with this problem. Uh, um, one of the efforts of the Clunaic revival in trying to pick up the morality of the Western churches uh, or the empires in the Western church uh, was to try to control these knights. And so they did that by creating a special moral code for knights called, what's the code for knights? Anybody? Code. The code of chivalry. <laughs> yes. Which uh, chivalry comes from the French word uh, chevalerie, which means mounted soldier. So it was the code of a mounted soldier. And this came from the churches. Uh, and the idea was that uh, a good knight was to pursue virtue. He was to pursue courage, justice, chastity, sobriety. Gets, takes care of a lot of bar fights if you're not drunk. Loyalty uh, and prudence. And so a young knight uh, was expected to swear an oath to follow that code. Uh, and in doing so, he received the blessing of the church uh, and was then expected to, to use his sword to serve God. Uh, he was a holy soldier. Uh, and so through this code and, and the evolution that it brought about within knights, uh, we saw knights go from this just uncouth, violent warrior to what we might call a paladin of God or a holy warrior, uh, someone who saw himself as a the physical military defender of the faith. And the Crusades provided the perfect channel for all of these men who had previously, uh, you know, recently, not pre recently taken this, this oath to follow the code. 
it was a holy war. It was a perfect opportunity to go and serve God in that way. Um, the abbot Guibert of Nogent um, sort of summed up the view of the relationship between a, a crusader or a, between a crusade and the knight who participated it uh, with this statement. He said, "In our times, God has instituted holy wars so that knights may find a new way of gaining salvation." They do not have to abandon secular affairs completely by choosing the monastic life or any religious profession, as was once the custom, but they can, in some degree, attain God's grace by pursuing their own knightly careers in the freedom and the armor which is their habit. These guys were really confused about salvation. <laughs> it, it does. Looking at how much I've got left, and we've got about five minutes, so... All right, the Crusades uh, weren't just wars fought by Christian soldiers. They also had a very practical spiritual aspect to them. Uh, before every battle, each soldier participated in the disciplines of confession and communion. Uh, the church did claim still that ultimate salvation was accomplished by Christ on the cross, um, but they also believed and taught that Christians still had to pay for their sins do uh, your own atonement there um, through through different means. You know, eventually, they're going to say you can do it through giving money, but it's it's paying paying off your sin debt through purgatory, uh, which isn't quite hell, but it is a place of punishment for sin. And so, by participating in a crusade, um, a Christian was granted full pardon from purgatory. So, but you had to be a Christian already. Um, and as you probably guessed, this pardon came to be called an indulgence. It was you get the pardon in return for something that you gave. In this case, your time, maybe your life. Um, some popes abused the promise of heavenly reward in order to increase participation in the Crusades, uh, going so far as to guarantee eternal life for all who participated. So not every Crusade came with a guarantee of salvation, but if the numbers were down... Salvation could be attained through your participation. Um, in fact, things got so ridiculous, as if they aren't already, uh, that a person could attain full indulgence from purgatory by hiring a knight to fight on his behalf. So if you weren't a soldier, but you had some money, you also could be certain of your salvation. Um, and so the Crusades, in a nutshell, were you know, power and money for the ruling class, uh, church-sanctioned violence for the warrior class, and a full-ride ticket to heaven for the commoner. It was. We're going to, in the next lesson, start to actually get into some specific crusades and details about them, and we're going to see exactly that. If all that had happened you know, with this first crusade was, hey, Western people, can you send help? We've got a territory war. Sure, we'll sign a treaty. and send, I mean, that's a common military thing that happens. But the church twisted it. We turned it into, this is God's will, go fight. We turned it into, this is salvation, this is power and money. And, uh, and as we saw, we, we mirrored the Muslims in so many ways in this. Um, and something I think I'll be mentioning next time, but the Crusades are one of the main reasons that the, the Christian church, even today, has such a hard time evangelizing the Muslim they still hate us for these. All right, well, let's close in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness throughout uh, all of the church history, that your faithful love continues to this day through uh, the things that we go through, the things that every era of the church has gone to, that um, we've seen so many mistakes that the church has made and does make, and yet uh, you are ready to forgive, and you preserve your church, and you love your church, God. And, uh, you are glorified in that. I ask that uh, we would c be a church that continues to glorify you, that uh, as we study history, that we would learn from their mistakes, that we would learn to love you more. I uh, ask that our service today would uh, be a blessing to you, that you would be with Bob as he speaks. And uh, Thank you for bringing us all here today. Amen. Thank you, Bill.